Please take God's Word and turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 8. Again, that is the book of Romans chapter 8. As you are finding your way there, I want to remind you uh, of who wrote this epistle. We find the answer to that question back in the first chapter, first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. I also want to remind you to whom Paul wrote this epistle. Again, back in the first chapter, verse 7, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. So we know who wrote this epistle, the Apostle Paul. We know to whom he wrote it, to all those in Rome, described in two ways. They are loved by God and they are called to be saints. In other words, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. And very important for us to never lose sight of that. Uh, he is not speaking in generalities in this book. He is not speaking of everyone. He is speaking of a very exclusive number. He is speaking of those who have repented of their sin and believe in the Lord Jesus, have received Christ as Lord and Savior. With that firmly in place, follow along now as we pick up our text for today in chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who? shall bring any charge against God's elect. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors, through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, this is exquisite. I don't use that word often, but there it is, exquisite. An exquisite section as Paul brings to a height, if you like, a culmination, this eighth chapter in his epistle to the Romans. He starts it off, he initiates it with a, with a question, a marvelous question. Right at the outset of verse 31. What then... What therefore shall we say to these things? I want to begin by approaching that question from three different angles. So I want, to, I want to throw the question out there three times. And each time emphasize something different. Again, come at it from three different angles. So firstly, what then shall we say to these things? What I want to emphasize to begin with is this. The question in and of itself is important. Forget everything that precedes it. Can't believe I just said that. 
Forget everything that precedes it. And, and don't think in terms of everything that's going to come after it. Just hone in on the question itself. What then shall we say to these things? We do not ask that question enough as Christians. When we read the Bible, morning devotions, when you're reading a good book like Kevin Day Young's The Whole in Our Holiness, when you hear a sermon, when we hear sermons, we have failed miserably if we have failed to ask and answer this question. What then shall we say to these things? In other words, how am I going to respond? The Lord Jesus to his disciples in Luke 9, he gave this admonition, let these words sink into your ears. Let these words sink into your ears. Far too often, uh, we listen without hearing. Far too often, we listen without taking it to heart. How are we going to respond? Do you believe what you hear? Are you convinced of it? Have you taken it to heart? Or are these merely Sunday morning truths? Do you consider what you hear? Do you impress divine truths upon your heart? Is your mind occupied with them? Or are you distracted and disinterested? Do you apply? Do I apply what we hear? How do you use it? What about when you're tempted to sin? What about when you're struggling with spiritual dullness? What about when you're afraid or worried or discouraged? What about when you're grieving? What do these divine truths mean for your priorities, values, and dreams? What do they mean for your life? What are you going to do about it? What are you going to start doing? What are you going to stop doing? What are you going to change? Well, let me say it again. The question is important in and of itself. What then shall we say to these things? Just think of the gospel. In all its glory, resplendent glory. What then shall we say to these things? How do we respond to the gospel? It is entirely possible, conceivable. As a matter of fact, it's more than just likely. It's, it's, it's a fact. There are some, perhaps just a handful, who have accompanied and heard this series in Paul's epistle to the Romans now for over a year. You have heard without really hearing. You have seen without really seeing. And my question to you is the question Paul poses right here. What then will you say to these things? If the gospel is true, it demands a response. If Christ is the Son of God, he demands a response. The realities of heaven and hell set before you demand a response. As Elijah, his cry echoes through the centuries. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Here is the gospel, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And perhaps you are an unbeliever. Here is my question to you. What then will you say to these things? The majority of us, believers. What then shall we say to these things? The gospel. As I reflected on that personally this past week, I set it in the context of Elizabeth Elliot's passing. She passed away, gone to glory this past week. And whenever I think of Elizabeth Elliot, I think of her first husband, Jim Elliot. And I think of that statement he penned in his journal decades ago before he was martyred, slaughtered by Indians down in Ecuador. He penned these words. He is no fool. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What then shall we say to these things? The gospel is transformative. The gospel, gospel, when it is understood and appreciated, it grips, it merits a response, it demands a response. It is impossible to remain in neutral. What then shall we say to these things? Let me approach it now from a second angle. What I want to emphasize now is this. What exactly does Paul mean by these things? What's the context? It is possible. It is possible. He's going all the way back to chapter 1 in his mind's eye. All the way back to chapter 1. There's a lengthy introduction in chapter 1 because he's unknown to the church at Rome. He's never been there. He doesn't know the vast majority of believers there. So he gives a very lengthy introduction in the first 15 verses. Then he launches out into this great celebration of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in it, what? The righteousness of God is revealed, right? From faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. He quotes from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. And so it's possible he's hearkening all the way back now and saying, look, everything I've said since I introduced that thesis statement, all the way back in chapter 1, verse 17, what then shall we say to these things? Or it's possible he's thinking in terms of chapter 3. After he's given that awful description of sin in chapters 2 and 3, and then he introduces this great theme that the righteousness of God is now revealed apart from the law. This righteousness that is obtained in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he begins to explain in detail in the rest of chapter 3, chapter 4, into chapter 5, that God justifies by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. What then shall we say to these things? It's entirely possible. Or he may be thinking back to the end of chapter 5. Because at the end of chapter 5, you know, he brings it all to a head. And there he introduces these two covenants and these two federal heads. He speaks of Adam and Christ. And he makes the point that as through one act of disobedience, there resulted condemnation and death for all men. So too, through one man's act of righteousness, Lord Jesus, there resulted justification and life for all men. That is all who are in the Lord Jesus. And so you are either in Adam under that old covenant of works, or you are in Christ under the covenant of grace. And so he may be thinking back to that. What then shall we say to these things? Or it may be something near at hand. He may be just thinking back to what is the start of the eighth chapter in, in the Bible as we have it. 
the very first verse, and that mind-boggling statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he begins to draw out some of the pastoral implications. And so he may just be hearkening back to the start of that statement and everything he has said since then. Or it's entirely possible, and I lean this way, I won't pick a fight with anybody who disagrees, but I lean this way, that he may be thinking really in terms of the immediate. The fact that he introduced this theme of suffering in the 17th verse made the point that suffering is the pathway to glory and then gave us these great pastoral helps, the hope of glory, the power of prayer, and the sovereignty of God. That pastorally, as we fix our minds and hearts upon those three great helps, God strengthens us to persevere in our Christian journey. It is entirely possible, I think very likely, that Paul has that primarily in view, not to the exclusion to the rest of it, because it's all tied together, isn't it? But he has primarily in view those three great pastoral helps as he now asks, what then shall we say to these things? How are you going to respond to the hope of glory? How are you going to respond to the power of prayer? And how are you going to respond to what he has said concerning the sovereignty of God. Now, the third angle I want to come at this question is as follows. What then shall we say to these things? So what does he say? He's thrown the question out there. He answers it himself in the rest of verse 31 all the way through to the end of the chapter. The answer is fourfold. A, B, C, D, 1, 2, 3, 4, whatever system you like to use. The answer is fourfold. It is easy to identify each answer because each is stated by way of a question. So here is his first answer by way of a question. The second half of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? What then shall we say to these things? Here's what we shall say. There is no opposition to God's power. If God is for us, pray tell, who can be against us? His second answer by way of a second question into verse 32. Two, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So what then shall we say to these things? Here's the second thing I will say. There is no limitation to God's grace. That's the second answer. The third answer brings us into verse 33. Again, a question. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What then shall we say to these things? Well, this is the third thing I will say very clearly. There is no alteration 
to God's justice. And then there is a fourth question. Brings us into verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He expounds on it all the way through to the end of verse 39, where he sums it all up by emphasizing what? There is nothing in all creation that is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What then shall we say to these things? This is the fourth thing I will say. There is no separation from God's love. Did you get the four? What are we going to say? What is our response? There is no opposition to God's power. There is no limitation to God's grace. There is no alteration to God's justice. And there is no separation from God's love. Today we're going to focus on number one and number two. Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll pick up with number three and number four. And so we begin with the first response. What then shall we say to these things? Here's what we will say. There is no opposition to God's power. It is packed into that question. Again, I'm directing your attention to the end of verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a tremendous statement. Deus pro nobis is the Latin. Luther took that as his uh, life statement. God for us in the midst of the Reformation and his struggle with the Roman Catholic Church. He took this verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? I want you to notice a few things. I want to draw out a few things. And I'll do so by way of questions. Here's the first question I have when I read this statement. Well, well when is God for us? If God is for us, well, when is God for us? I think it's obvious that Paul has in view what he has just stated in verses 28 through 30. God is for us. I have just explained in verses 28, 29, and 30 what I mean. I have just explained in detail how God is for us. God is for us, firstly, in foreknowing us. He set his love upon us. Before the foundation of the world, we are his chosen ones. We constitute his elect. He has given us to his son. We are the apple of his eye. He is for us in foreknowing us. He is for us, secondly, in predestinating us. He has this tremendous goal, design, plan. It is to glorify himself. The glory of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in the redemption, regeneration, salvation of this, this people and their conformity to the likeness of His beloved Son. This is a plan that resides in the eternal decrees of God. And therefore, I see that God is for me in His plans, His purposes, His eternal decrees. God is for us, thirdly, in calling us. And so I think back. I remember. I was five years of age. Of all strange places to be, I was walking down the street. And I was under a little conviction for sin. I knew what I'd been up to even as a five-year-old. 
And even at that age, grasping the basic elements and essentials of the gospel, I remember believing in the Lord Jesus. And a life of faith, that commenced a life of faith whereby the righteous, the just, live by faith. At that moment, I was made one with the Lord Jesus. And as I look back, I know what? I know that preceding that confession and preceding the life of faith which began at that moment, God was for me in that he called me. He sent forth the Holy Spirit who gave me even as a five-year-old eyes to see and ears to hear, gave me life whereby I believed. Oh, God is for us in justifying us. Having believed, I was made one with Christ in union. Therefore, his death, his burial, his resurrection are mine. Meaning what? The penalty for my sin is paid in full upon Calvary's cross. cross. And now in Christ Jesus, I have become the righteousness of God. The just, the righteous live by faith. He is for us. How? In glorifying us. Nothing will snatch us from the palm of his hand. The work he began in us, he will complete. He will see it through to completion, to fruition. And finally, in the context of verses 28 through 30, God is for us. How? In working all things together for our good. That all things good and bad, everything that comes down the highway in my life, although I might not necessarily be able to make sense of it, I have this absolute unwavering certainty that God Almighty orchestrates it all, has decreed it all, governs it all for my ultimate good. My ultimate good being what? His good, perfect plan for me, which is what? My conformity to the image of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is for us. As David celebrates back in Psalm 124, 125, God is on our side. Second question I ask when I, when I meditate upon this verse simply is, well, who is this God? Who is he? Hear these words out of Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. He is the blessed. As Paul celebrates in his epistle to Timothy, he is, this God is, the blessed and only sovereign, the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. This God is for me. This God is on my side. Oh, hear this, please. This God, this, this blessed sovereign, works irresistibly. No one can hinder him. All the combined power and wisdom of humans and angels cannot stop him. This blessed sovereign works autonomously. His pleasure is his reason. His pleasure 
is his reason. He has no reason outside of himself. No motivation outside of himself. He alone does whatever he wills. Everything he does is just and it is good and it is perfect for only one reason. Because he does it. Because he does it. Oh, this blessed sovereign works effortlessly. He does the hardest things with ease. He does the greatest things with the same ease that he does the least things. It's all the same to him. Makes no difference. This blessed sovereign works independently. He never requires a helping hand. He did not make us because he needed us, but because it was his good pleasure to do so. He does not use us because he has to use us. He uses us because he chooses to use us. His throne is in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Hear these words out of the book of Job. God hangs the earth on nothing. He binds up the waters in his thick clouds. He covers the face of the full moon. He has inscribed the boundary between light and darkness. Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways. And how small a whisper do we hear of him. This God is on our side. If this God is for us, who can be against us? One of my fondest childhood memories playing street hockey. Forgive me as I indulge the past here. Street hockey to me, what football is to Texans. Here we have it. Street hockey, every day after school in front of the house. There would be a dozen of us playing till dark. Uh, I guess maybe third grade, fourth grade. I'm thinking back now. And uh, one of my friends, Christopher, had an older brother, Jeff. And Jeff was already in high school, so he was twice our size. And Jeff would always get home from school later than the rest of us. We'd be well into the game. And one team obviously would be winning by the time he arrived. He would always join the losing team. Always. And the losing team would always end up winning. Why? Because he could knock us all over at the same time. He was twice our size. He could score from anywhere on the street. His slap shot was the envy of every kid in the neighborhood. Multiply, multiply that by a billion. And you're still not even getting close to what Paul is saying here. We're still not even approximating. We're not even in the same universe when it comes to what Paul is saying here. If God is for us, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? There is no opposition to his power. What about the devil? The devil's power is limited, limited by God. And please understand this. Yes, he is powerful, but it is a limited power. As a matter of fact, it is a ministerial power. Meaning what? That every time the devil exercises his power, his influence, his enmity, he is actually doing so subservient to the king's plans and purposes. The devil does not oppose God. He might think he does. Yes, he, that's his motivation. 
But even the schemes of the devil, the wiles of the devil, the opposition of the devil, and even the power of the devil, yes, powerful, all of these things orchestrated subservient to the blessed and only sovereign God himself. There's the first implication. There's the first response. There is no opposition to his power. The second is this. There's no limitation to God's grace. Into verse 32. Notice three parts in this question. Part number one. He who did not spare his own son. Part number two. But gave him up for us all. Part number three. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And so the question nicely divides into three sections. In the first section, you have the statement of a fact. Just a fact. Here it is. He, God, who did not spare his own son. It's a fact. He did not spare his own son. I can only assume the language is intentional. Paul uses the same word. We go back to Genesis chapter 22. He uses the same word that is found back in that text. What happens back in Genesis 22? God commands Isaac to take his only son, his beloved son, and to go to the mount he will show him and there offer him up as a sacrifice. Abraham goes willingly. He has his knife. He is ready to plunge that knife into his son, his only son, his beloved son Isaac. God stops him speaking from heaven. Do not lay your hand on the boy. Or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God. Seeing you have not withheld. Same word here now in Romans 8. You have not spared. You have not spared your son. Your only son. From me. I think Paul's trying to drive us back in our mind's eye to Genesis 22. He's saying look there's a parallel here. Look Christ in the Old Testament. Gospel in the Old Testament. Abraham had his only son, his unique son, his beloved son, Isaac. God has his only son, his unique son, his only begotten son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Abraham ascended that mountain, he did not spare his son. He did not withhold him. Similarly, God the Father did not spare God the Son. God the Father did not withhold the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a tremendous statement. It weighs far too lightly upon us. You know, I, I suppose human terms, human experiences, can they, can they, can they help us understand this? What it, what it must have meant for the Father to give up His Son. What it must have meant for the Father to hand over His Son. Not spare His beloved Son. I recall, I recall, oh, it's going back 15 years ago now. A family in the church I grew up with, grew up in, and uh, a boy, he was maybe 10, 15 years younger than me, age 20, killed in a motorcycle accident. And I remember his father's grief. I remember it vividly, even to this day. And I have no doubt that 15 years on, the grief for that father is as real today as it was then. Oh, to lose a son. Um, think of David. I mean, Absalom. For all his failures, and he had a lot, didn't he? Rebelled against his father. There's the ensuing battle. Do you remember between David's army, Absalom's army, father and son? Absalom flees, caught in the tree. Joab discovers him, kills him. 
Word gets back to David, and it's just heart-piercing. Do you remember David's cry? Absalom, my son. My son, Absalom. We can enter into it, can't we? Humanly. I don't even think we're beginning to approximate it, though, and we're in the realm of the divine. What it meant for the father to surrender the son. What this statement means, he did not spare him. He did not withhold him. But what? Fact number two brings us into the second section. But gave him up. Delivered him up. Now here's the wonder of grace. For us all. And grace is magnified. When we just pause for a moment. And consider who we are. Who God is. Who his son is. His only begotten son. His beloved one. And that he willingly gave him up upon Calvary's cross. He willingly turned from him as he hung upon Calvary's cross. He willingly removed his countenance from him. And the Lord Jesus there upon Calvary's cross in utter darkness. Why? Because there he is made sin for us. And there he bears the corresponding weight of the wrath of God as he experiences hell itself. And this weight, tremendous weight upon his soul. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me for us? You know, Charleston, South Carolina. And that's pretty horrific, isn't it? I mean, the doctrine of total depravity, for me, it's objective. It's just a fact. Just get your head out of the sand and look around. The doctrine of total depravity. Depravity. And what men and women, people get up to in our day and age. And what they do and the harm they willingly inflict upon one another. Just pick up a history textbook and read history. Human history is simply this. It is the history of the unfolding of total depravity. Well, I've never done anything like that. No. The doctrine of total depravity is not that we are as bad as we could be. Did you catch that? The doctrine of total depravity is not that we are as bad in our actions as we could be. The doctrine of total depravity is this, that that evil and potential for evil resides within each and every one of us. And the only thing restraining it is God's common grace. Not you, my friend, but the restraining grace of God. And I realize that my enmity toward others at times, my anger and fits of rage at times, springs from the same well as murder. You don't believe me? Read Matthew 5. It's Christ's point in the Sermon on the Mount. Sin is alive and well in each and every one of us. Oh, the magnitude of God's grace. The height and depth, breadth and length of his love. As we ponder these statements together, he did not spare his own son but gave him up 
for us all. A sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice. What is the third section? It's a question now, the implication. Okay, you get fact one, you get fact two. How will he, God, how will he not also with him, with Christ, graciously give us all things? He's arguing from the greater to the lesser. Look, if God has given us that which he esteems highest, if God has given us that which is of most worth in his sight, if God has given us that which is most valuable, most precious to him, namely his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if he did not withhold, if he did not withhold his own son, but poured out his wrath upon him at Calvary's cross that we might be saved. Well, how will he not also with him, arguing from the greater to the lesser, graciously give us all things? How will he not pardon our sins? How will he not give us strength in this journey? How will he not impart to us the gift of the Holy Spirit? How will he not work all things together for our good? How will he not see us safely home? How will he not glorify us as he has promised to do, making us heirs with Christ, heirs of him? If he's given us the greatest, and surely all these lesser things are child's play. That's his point. Surely we have the assurance Absolute unwavering conviction that there is no limitation to God's grace because his grace is made manifest upon Calvary's cross. Oh, if God has given us the greatest gift of all, then he will give us every gift. He will give us pardon to cancel our sins. He will give us comfort to support us in our troubles. He will give us wisdom to lead us in our valleys. He will give us strength to equip us to serve him. And he will give us the promised reward. It is an absolute certainty because he has already given for us the greatest gift of all. There is no opposition to God's power. There is no limitation to God's grace. What then shall we say to these things? This is what I say. If God is for us, who can be against us? Context, context, context. This epistle was likely written somewhere in the year 53, 54, 55 AD. Within a decade, many if not most of the Christians to whom Paul writes this epistle will be martyred. Many of them will be used as human torches to light up the evening festivities of the Roman emperor Nero. If God is for us, who can be against us? Many will survive. The church will go on and there will be subsequent persecutions. And then by the year 400, 410, these barbarians, these Germanic tribes from the north are going to invade the Roman Empire. They're going to overrun it. And they're going to arrive at the walls, the very gates of the city of Rome. They're going to sack it. They're going to burn large segments of it. They're going to loot it. They're going to kill randomly, indiscriminately. 
And the Christians that survive will be forced to flee for their lives across the Mediterranean to North Africa. If God is for us, who can be against us? My friend, if you still persist in defining blessedness, if you still insist in defining happiness, true joy, true delight, in terms of earthly comforts, I put it to you, 95% of the Bible is closed to you. It is a meaningless book. God does not promise us earthly comforts. He does not promise us a life of ease. What does he promise us? Hear it from the pen of Peter himself. By God's power. We are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined for something, for glory, conformity to the likeness of Christ. Those whom he predestined, he called in time. Those whom he called, he justified in his sight. And those whom he has justified, he will most certainly glorify. All things work together for that good. If that is true, what then shall we say to these things? We will say this, if God is for us, who can be against us? When it comes to God's plan of salvation for us, who can be against us? When it comes to God's eternal decrees for his people and his promise to work everything now for their good, culminating in that yet future glory, when we perceive blessedness and happiness and truth and delight and joy and glory in these terms, oh, these promises come alive. But if we're still thinking in earthly terms, if we're still thinking of temporal things, as I stated last week, if we're still confused with that word good, defining it according to our enjoyment of earthly comforts instead of the improvement of heavenly graces, this entire book is meaningless to us. It is not the angle from which God is coming at it. God has a plan to glorify his people in the future. And commensurate with that plan is a pathway of suffering now that will lead and culminate in glory. And his promise is this. He works all things together for that good. That being the case, what shall we say? We will be absolutely confident that there is no opposition to his power when it comes to accomplishing his will for us. And there is no limitation to his grace. There is nothing that can change or alter his plan for us. Oh, hear the words of the hymn writer. My name from the palms of his hands. Eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains. In marks of indelible grace. Yea, I to the end shall endure. As sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. What then shall we say to these things? We will rest in an all-powerful God, and we will rest in a God whose grace knows no limit. Our Heavenly Father, we seek now your blessing upon your word as it has gone forth. Resting in the fact that you're mindful of every need 
Every man, every woman, every boy, every girl gathered in this room at this very moment. Mindful of the fact that you peer into the hearts of men. And you weigh our motives and our desires, our ambitions and our dreams. Mindful of the fact that nothing is kept secret from you. Nothing is hidden from your view. And so we come. We come as creatures. We come as finite creatures. We come as sinful, finite creatures. And we seek your richest blessing upon the preaching of your word. And we pray that you would give us those eyes to see, those ears to hear. And that your word would come alive to us, orienting, directing, correcting, encouraging, comforting as necessary. We pray this for the furtherance of your kingdom among us, for your eternal glory. And we ask it in the matchless name of Christ. Amen.